Hi, Sarah. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm doing all right this week. How are you? I'm good. So for the moment, we are both here in New York. We are. Um, we are on, oh my goodness, episode 10 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast this week. Can you believe it? I can't. <laughs> Brought to you by producer Natasha Lewis, yes. whom we adore. We do. This week, we'll be talking some about Walmart. You may know it as the world's largest employer. But first, we'll be doing our traditional news roundup, which longtime 10-week listeners... 10 weeks? ...will know begins like this. <laughs> this week, as we are recording, we are waiting to see whether Florida Governor Rick Scott will veto or sign a bill by the Republican legislature in Florida that would preempt local paid sick leave laws... Spoiler alert, I would expect that he will sign it, being a conservative Republican. Terrible person. This is the latest in what has become an increasingly broad and numerous number of local and state-level skirmishes around paid sick leave. This is, interestingly, one of the few areas in recent years that we have seen progressives on offense at the state level, where often we see labor and other progressive constituencies fighting back attacks from resurgent right-wing legislatures and governors. Here we have seen a not steady but not slow increase in the number of municipalities and states in the U.S. that require some or all employers to provide some level of paid sick leave with New York's compromised but still meaningful bill that was finally passed after years of delay by Council Speaker Chris Quinn being the most recent example. What episode did we talk about on that? You know what? I don't even remember because it's been so long. You might have to go back and listen to all the episodes to be sure. (laughs) So the empire is striking back. And what we have seen recently from the American Legislative Exchange Council, from Republicans in various cities and states is an effort to stop cities, which tend to be more progressive politically than the rest of the state, from mandating paid sick leave. And so one of the country's very first paid sick leave laws is no longer in effect. That was the one in Milwaukee. It was preempted by that state's governor. You may have heard of him. His name is Scott Walker. Bobby Jindal followed the lead, and despite there being no local paid sick leave laws in the state of Louisiana, got out in front, passing a law in Louisiana, signing the law to prevent municipalities from enacting paid sick leave. And now in Florida, where, as I reported for In These Times, there was a quite dramatic HBO-ready legislative series of maneuverings and shenanigans that prevented uh, Red County from putting paid sick leave on the ballot. We now see Republicans trying to make extra sure that there won't be paid sick leave there by preempting at the state level. And again, we are waiting to see what happens with Rick Scott's signature. I would not be optimistic about the supporters of paid sick leave winning this particular round in Florida. I'm going to try to depress you less now. Um, (laughs) We have a... uh... Something that looks like it could be a win here in New York. A federal what? judge has ruled this this just this week 
that um, Fox Searchlight Pictures violated federal and New York minimum wage laws by not paying its production interns. On the movie Black Swan, some of you may have seen it. Um, so the, the judge ruled, in essence, that this production internship was basically grunt work, that it was not an educational experience for these interns, but that it was it was a job that benefited the company, not the interns. And so... This is, right, the open secret of most internships, which is that they're not really educational experiences at all. And a lot of times they're just ways to get free labor and you get your foot in the door and you get to, you know, maybe meet some people. But by and large, you're fetching coffee and making copies and picking up packages and whatnot. Um, And, you know, this is something that is not a surprise to probably most of our listeners. Um, There are more than 1 million internships estimated in this country last year, and somewhere around half of them were unpaid. So this ruling has the potential to impact a lot of people. Um, So the ruling says also that it doesn't matter whether you get college credit for the internship or not. What matters is the quality of the work. So if this is an internship that's actually designed as an educational experience where you're getting to get some work that is really designed to teach young or not so young, but people who are new to their field in any case, what it's like to work there, um, then you can probably still get away with those being unpaid. But the days of fetching coffee and hoping that your boss remembers your name hopefully will be over. Although, once again, of course, we see with many of these cases that even if the law theoretically is on our side, enforcement is the big problem. Still, it's a win. Let's just call it what it is and be happy that we have something to be happy about this week, right? Because Josh is probably about to depress you again right now. Well, sometimes it's hard to say whether something is good news or bad news, depending on what level of optimism or pessimism or outrage or curiosity you came in with. But bad news for labor, folks will know going back years now is the Obama administration's ongoing approach to negotiations of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. Good news within that cloud of bad news, potentially, is a story reported by a great journalist at the Huffington Post, Zach Carter, who reported on a letter from U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren to President Obama's most recent nominee for the U.S. Trade Representative. Former banker. This letter is calling for more transparencies about these TPP negotiations, a deal which, because of the mechanism that allows countries to join, could end up being a global trade deal advocates have predicted, which would be potentially larger than NAFTA. A provision that I found particularly interesting here that was in what are leaked draft documents regarding a chapter is the provision that, as with NAFTA, would allow what's called investor state dispute resolution, where a private corporation could bring suit for damages against a government for implementing laws or regulations that cost them money. Now, the U.S. government, in my interviews with for Salon, in their interviews with others, has maintained that this would not apply to any common sense regulations that actually protect people, but advocates, including environmentalists, global justice activists, and folks from labor have said there is nothing about the language that should actually reassure people. In my interview with an official several months ago when this leaked, an official from the AFL-CIO said that 
the AFL-CIO had expressed concerns to the administration that the language as it existed could endanger protections like maternity leave, and that while the administration had heard those concerns, they neither appeared to share them nor had credibly explained why they did not share them, was the diplomatic way that the AFL-CIO stated this. (laughs) Obama touted the trade deal in his most recent State of the Union and was not criticized for it in Richard Trumka, the AFL-CIO president's statement on the State of the Union. This letter from Elizabeth Warren is the latest attempt to call attention to at least the process around this deal, where we have seen over and over, including in comments by a former U.S. trade representative, that there is really a recognition from the people who push these deals that more public attention to what is in them is not going to be helpful in getting them passed as they exist now. And so we shall see whether this letter leads to more either sunlight on the deal that might be optimistic or at least more attention to the deal making that's going on. And we should keep in mind, this is an area where Congress... The filibuster, Republicans are not any kind of meaningful excuse in considering why it is that what is being done by the Obama administration is not what organized labor would like to see happening. And let's not forget that when Obama ran for president in 2008, he ran promising to renegotiate NAFTA, CAFTA, all of these fun trade deals that we've been talking about, arguing about, crying about for years. So we'll, I'm sure, be paying more attention to this. But back home in New York, where we are once again recording. From Belabored's global headquarters. Global headquarters in Brooklyn. Um, yesterday, there were, there were a couple of rallies at City Hall in New York. Um, the first one, around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, was um, the striking legal services workers, who I've talked about before in this news roundup. And um, they're now in the four- their fourth week of strike. Um, they've had their health care cut off retroactively to the first day that they went on strike. So they are now working without health care, have been working or have been functioning without health care for four weeks. Um, and these are the health care is actually the major sticking point in their negotiation process. In any case, the um, their management wants them to take massive cuts on health care, which is something we've seen a lot lately. And yet these same businesses don't ever seem to want to support a universal health care program. In any case, the the rally yesterday was supported by several city council members, but what was really interesting about it was that it was actually there to feature the clients of these legal services workers. Um, These are people who provide free um, consultation and representation to low-income New Yorkers. They have fought foreclosures for people, fought evictions, um, helped with immigration processes. Um, They really provide an invaluable service to people who certainly could not otherwise afford a lawyer. Um, and they are funded by federal money, state money, city money, um, as well as some foundation money. And so some of their clients were there to speak about what this legal services program has really meant to them. Um, it was a woman that I saw, Monique Goodman, who was in a wheelchair, who was talking about her landlord not having heat, using her oven for heat. And when she called her landlord to ask him to fix the heat, he told her that she needed to crawl down on the floor and fiddle with the vents herself. She is, of course, in a wheelchair. This is rather difficult for her. Um, And so when she contacted legal services, they got her, I think, over $7,000 in back money from the landlord because it's illegal here in this city to not have heat in your apartment. 
So it's really, it's one of those cases, um, Molly Neffel put this really beautifully in a piece that she wrote about the bus driver strike a little while ago, which is that the way we treat these workers shows how we value the people that they care for. And I've written a lot about care work, as some belabored listeners would know. And this, again, this is while they're providing a, a highly skilled service as legal aid workers. It's really important to note that, again, the way that these workers are treated is a reflection of how much we value the people that they help. So the fact that we don't think that people who are providing free legal services to people who, in some cases, have health conditions of their own, that we don't think that those workers deserve decent health care, that's a measure of our, well, I mean, I would say contempt for the people that they are there to help as well. Um, and just a couple hours later, um, and in the same location at City Hall, there was also there was a much bigger rally um, that was many of the public sector, I think all of the public sector unions in the city, because almost all of them have been working without contracts for at least a year. Some of them, I think the UFT has been without a contract for like four years, um, the teachers. So this rally was, you know, was union leaders speaking. It was interesting to note that it was a rally almost entirely devoted to talking about how bad Mayor Bloomberg has been for working people. And the real question is going to be, of course, who the next mayor, Josh mentioned Christine Quinn, the Speaker of the City Council, who is now running for mayor. And she has several challengers. The real question is, is the next mayor going to be better? And is waiting for the next mayor and assuming the next mayor will be better a good strategy for labor to follow or for anyone who is advocating for a progressive position to follow? So I'm sure we will, once again, be back to our depressing mayor's race soon enough. Are, are we putting that update, Sarah, in the good news or bad news ledger for the news roundup? You know, I always like to see hundreds and hundreds of workers massed in one place um, for a political point. The theme of this rally was workers count, workers vote. Um, the real question is, are all of those workers going to be counted and vote and elect one candidate? Or are they going to all of those people who were able to mass for a rally Yesterday, several of those unions have endorsed different candidates. So it'll be interesting to see, again, what what actually comes of all of this, who makes it through the uh, primary alive, so to speak. It'll be interesting to see what happens. So I am, I am calling this one faintly positive for now. Faintly positive for those keeping score at home on the news roundup of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. So from New York to all the way to Arkansas, we are going to uh, take a little trip back in time because um, Josh spent some time last week in Arkansas at the Walmart shareholders meeting. So, um, and he's had some very interesting stories to tell. There are a couple of reports up at the Nation website now, and there will be a feature story, I understand, in the magazine coming soon. But um, we have him here now, so we're going to make him tell us more stories. So, Josh, tell us about this shareholder meeting and how strange it is. It is very strange. I, I don't attend a lot of shareholder meetings, <laughs> but it is widely recognized that Walmart is... Sui generous. So Walmart shareholder meeting was something like a cross between an Oscars ceremony and a political convention. Not a dinky local political convention, but a national presidential political convention. So you had 
just tons of celebrities. Celebrities introducing other celebrities. Like who? You had Hugh Jackman. Oh, God. The MC, who made it. never look at Wolverine the same way again. <laughs> That's the tagline for this podcast. <laughs> Hugh Jackman sang a song, which he had rewritten to go, What a Beautiful Morning, Being with Walmart Today. Ugh. He cracked a joke. It was kind of country club kind of humor like he cracked a joke about the villains the greatest superhero movie villains of all time being the irs agents is hugh jackman well hugh jackman's australian so he's not a republican but still this is so depressing to me he also found a les mis song that is not about revolution or class struggle to sing master of the house (laughs) well that would have been appropriate but no this was this was the one about taking account and taking responsibility for your crimes and turning yourself in. Wait, 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 wait. Was he singing Javert? Sorry, yeah. I am a Liam Is fan. Sorry, internet. Um, this is a very important thing for me. No, All right, this was the, this was the I am uh, Jean Valjean. Oh, okay. A Jean Valjean, yes. Where oh, he turns God. himself in. So whether this is messages directed at the workers or at the management is... is the eye of the beholder he also though perhaps the greatest moment of suspense that did not involve striking workers or bangladeshi labor activists at the shareholder meeting was when he said he was about to announce someone that everyone would know around the world that needed no introduction and that was well known for his concern for humanitarian issues around the world he's waiting for me to guess guys i don't know um jimmy carter Tom Cruise. What? So that happened. Tom Cruise hearts Walmart, y'all. Just one more reason to be afraid. So aside from the celebrities, though, this was also like a political convention in that you had rhapsodies from the stage about the American dream, about the spirit of service of people who go into the military, about how this is a land of opportunity. You had the chosen people from the stage reading letters and reciting stories about people who were sitting in the audience, the quote-unquote regular people in the audience whose stories typify some kind of larger point. In this case, the point would be Walmart is a land of opportunity. This, In case that was too abstract, Walmart officials actually called up a couple employees onto the stage to bestow promotions on them on the spot. Promotions from what to what exactly? Promotions to, I believe, assistant general manager of a store. Mm. Two different stores. All right. There was also what, so at Sarah's Great Advice, I read Bethany Ann Morden's book, To Serve God in Walmart, where she talks about the company's culture over the decades. It is a wonderful book. You all should read it. It's true. Hopefully we will be able to have her on the podcast at some point. Bethany, if you're listening, we're plotting. Call our agent. (laughs) And so she talks in this book about the ritual embarrassment, the ritual humbling of management that would take place decades ago at Walmart. This Mm -hmm. counter-revolutionary cultural event where you would have male managers who had to wear dresses for a day. Yeah. And this moment that is meant to make you feel like you're not actually in an oppositional relationship with your boss. Right. So there was this really weird symbolic thing that happened at this meeting. Apparently every year 
the CEO, Mike Duke, is made to do something awkward. Like, apparently, last year it was drinking a soft drink from a non-Western country. That was the humorous thing that Mike Duke was made to do. From a not, like, like one of those, the Japanese bubble soda or something? I... I'm confused. Okay, we'll leave that one for later. We'll do some research. If any of you know, let us know. Yes, we'll send you a t-shirt. Um, when we sidebar, get we don't have t-shirts. Yet. But if we did, they would be made with reasonable labor conditions. Of course. This year, the ritual humbling of Mike Duke was a lower-level Walmart executive showed off a plastic ball that is apparently one of the items that is sold at every Walmart or nearly every Walmart in the world. How big a plastic ball? It's like a soccer ball. Okay. And he supposedly surprised Mike Duke with the fact that he would have to try to kick this ball into a goal and the goalie would be a Walmart employee who actually knows how to play soccer who was from, I believe, South America. Mm Mm-hmm. Mike Duke looks awkward and nervous, but then announces in a surprise twist that he has his own Walmart employee who he will be subcontracting to to kick the soccer ball into the goal. So he brings up a, I believe, British Walmart employee to kick the soccer ball on his behalf. He is chided about this by the executive who set him up. And then he responds by saying, well, as management... My job is to empower and support our employees. There's so much wrong with that. I can't even really get started. But, like, let's... I I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm going to leave it there. Go on, Josh. If you're looking for a dissertation topic, the yes. video of this shareholder meeting is available on the internet. Maybe we'll post a link to it at the Descent Magazine website. Perhaps we shall. Check out our website. So, amid this meeting, I mean, you had lights, you had celebrity speeches, you had song, you had the twirling of umbrellas, you had elephant puppets, you had people in costumes. Elephants being the symbol of which political party you get? Readers, if you know, tweet the answer to Descent Mag. Use the belabored hashtag. But amid Not all this... that Democrats don't love Walmart, too. Fact check. Democrats do love Walmart. <laughs> so, as all of this spectacle was taking place, we also had these serious speeches about how Walmart is a land of opportunity. Uh, executives said that there is no company in the world that does more to bring more people from where they are to where they want to be in their life than Walmart. But the moment at which the spell was at least momentarily perhaps broken was when there was the opportunity for shareholder resolutions. Based on SEC regulations involving corporate governance and given the opportunity created by the fact that institutional investors like big union pension funds own a bunch of Walmart stock, there were four resolutions opposed by Walmart that were presented on the floor Two of the four were presented by women who have a very personal stake and a quite significant history of tangling with Walmart. 
One was Kalpana Akhtar, the head of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity, who I've talked about on the podcast. She is a past awardee of our ARG, I wish I wrote that, honor on this podcast. More importantly, she worked in the garment industry as a teenager in Bangladesh, experienced retaliation for organizing, has been jailed repeatedly for organizing, currently faces what human rights groups call spurious legal charges that could potentially have her jailed again that were brought by factories, including Walmart-contracted factories in Bangladesh. And she has been, as you might imagine, a critic of Walmart. So she spoke about Walmart's refusal to enter the accord backed by labor and by many European brands around Bangladesh fire and building safety, a topic we've talked about on the podcast. She was followed by Janet Sparks, a Walmart employee from Baker, Louisiana, who a few years ago was actually one of the employees flown in for the convention by Walmart. This time she was not. This time she was there on strike. She's a leader of our Walmart, the group very closely tied to the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. And she spoke for three minutes about the literally several million dollars in bonuses that CEO Mike Duke had received, the understaffing and underpayment that she alleged were rampant in the company and at her own store. She contrasted her bonus that in several years, she said, had only happened twice at her store quarterly bonuses with the bonuses he was receiving. She contrasted the wages that he received with those of the average Walmart worker, a disparity, she said, of over a thousand times different. And as she did this, a small group of striking workers who were inside the meeting cheered. A small group of attendees somewhere in the meeting seemingly tried to throw her off or cut her off with a chant of USA, USA. And then at the point that she asked the crowd, do you really believe that this is the best that Walmart can do for employees and for customers? Rob Walton, the chair of Walmart's board, told her that her three minutes were up. And after two other shareholders presented resolutions, he tepidly thanked everyone who had brought these resolutions. (laughs) And then the singer Prince Royale serenaded the crowd with Stand By Me as the hall was bathed in in warm lights. (sighs) Walmart. So... Janet Sparks, I spoke to Janet Sparks for a story that I wrote for Religion Dispatches about the role of religion in organizing at Walmart or the lack of organizing at Walmart for years. We already mentioned Bethany Morton's book. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Janet Sparks was the kind of employee that Bethany Morton was talking about. She's a deeply religious woman who... um, believed that the company, that the people who ran the company cared about the same things as she did, that they shared her Christian values. And the thing that made her want to get involved in organizing was realizing that that was not true, that their, whatever the Walmart executives refer to as Christian values were not the same as her own. So Janet, like Josh said, was there a couple of years ago as a guest of Walmart. Um, so I'm interested in how the workers who were there this year as guests of Walmart reacted to the strikers, to Kalpana Akhtar, to Janet Sparks, to the fact that there were clearly people there who were organizing against Walmart. So this is one of the things that I went to Arkansas really eager to see, because unlike other companies, and Walmart is in many ways a pioneer and a trendsetter for other companies, but in other ways still something of a, a singular phenomenon, 
Walmart flies 14,000 workers from around the world in for about a week to attend concerts, attend meetings, including a meeting at which local press reported executives by name called out our Walmart and told these employees that it was an organization of paid agitators who were going to try to disrupt things and who thought that workers were too stupid to know whether their job was good or not. (laughs) So these workers are flown in to attend the meeting in this week of events. They are chaperoned around in various tourist activities, and so they repeatedly would cross paths roughly with the striking our Walmart activists, often who are in green shirts. And when that happened, there was not a lot of contact. And one of the things, I wasn't at the meeting in 2012, but when our Walmart was younger, when it hadn't yet pulled off strikes, one of the things organizers said was exciting that happened in 2012 was impromptu constructive conversations between the our Walmart activist workers who had been flown there by labor and the workers flown there by management. There was not a lot of that this year. And workers who I talked to pointed out that managers often swooped in to prevent conversations from happening. Shocking. But workers also acknowledged candidly that many of these workers who were there in blue shirts, who often had management nearby, did not act like they wanted to talk to them. Yeah. Which is not surprising given the presence of management, given the explicit denunciations of our Walmart that were taking place in these meetings that workers who had been flown in were put through. But it was something that was hurtful or disappointing for some of the workers there. One worker said to me, oh, just because I'm wearing this shirt, they don't even want to look at me, even though I'm fighting for them also. One worker, less charitably, referred to the people who had been brought there by Walmart as brainwashed. The When I went up and talked to some of the workers who had been flown in by Walmart, some were willing to talk about the trip. And people said things like that it was awesome, that it really made them feel how Walmart was a family. A few people actually said that being flown in for that trip motivated them to work harder at Walmart and to work harder to try to get promoted at Walmart. When I asked workers who'd been flown in by Walmart about folks from our Walmart, well, the first thing that came through is that many people acted as if, and I believe honestly, didn't know what the phrase our Walmart meant. One person thought I was referring to a concert. Another thought by saying our Walmart, I just meant Walmart, the company. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that came through was that many workers declined to be interviewed at all, but... Many of the ones I talked to, when I would bring up the group, would say something along the lines of, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm supposed to talk. Some One said, these are the people that we were warned about, and then walked away. A few people at one table in a museum that's funded by Walmart and the Waltons said things to the effect of they're wearing the wrong colored t-shirts, they're going to do their thing, we're going to do our thing, we don't have anything to say about them. But in general, the response was either hesitance to discuss the group or a, a quick move to distance themselves from that group. Now, that challenge is not representative in that these interactions occurred not in private relative to management, and these are workers who had just been treated to an Elton John concert and meals and Elton propaganda. John too? God. All of your favorite celebrities. All of our favorite white male celebrities. I'm not saying anything about white men. 
there were also some non-white male celebrities there touting Walmart. But okay. yes, but it may be that all of your favorite white male celebrities were among the <laughs> Walmart cheer squad. I'm not going to forget about Hugh Jackman. I I know I was personally disappointed when Meryl Streep participated in a Walmart-sponsored concert on behalf of the Parent Trigger anti-teachers union movie Won't Back Down last year. <sighs> but so while the challenges that these workers experienced talking to these other workers flown in by Walmart were not representative they are revealing in that they're a reminder of the various avenues and threats and methods that walmart has for discouraging workers beyond those whatever sliver it is that may actually be content with their conditions discouraging workers from being involved in trying to transform the company yeah um, so as you mentioned, some of the workers who had traveled there with our Walmart have been on strike, um, have been on strike for more than one day. These were the first prolonged strikes at the company, as we talked about a couple of um, podcasts ago. So what is what is going on with the strikers? Are they going back to work now? Are some of them back at work? Are any of them having problems being accepted back at work? So after up to a week and a half on strike, the workers began going back to work Last weekend and on Monday, most or all of the workers plan to return to work in that time frame. I requested and have not received comment from Walmart regarding whether they would try to permanently replace, so to speak, any of these workers. The most dramatic report that has emerged so far was at Janet Sparks' store. And Janet Sparks is the one who spoke on the floor of the convention to thousands of coworkers and shareholders. At her store, workers, because of the legal complexities in part of strikes, which perhaps we will devote an entire episode to, workers went together to present a letter to management saying that they were offering unconditionally to return to work and end the strike. And a manager, reportedly it was an assistant manager, kicked them off the property, threatened to call the police, refused to accept the letter, raising the question of whether these workers would actually be denied their jobs back. There were calls that were made to management when Making Change at Walmart, an allied group, put out a call on Facebook. In the end, while those workers had been kicked off from trying to deliver the letter, when it came to their shift, the workers were allowed to return and were back at work. So there have not been any reports so far of Walmart refusing to let those strikers return back to work. Well, that's something. Um, So I guess the question, of course, that everybody is probably thinking of by now is, okay, what's next for our Walmart? And specifically, I'm sort of interested in, as we mentioned before, Democrats, a lot of them anyway, heart Walmart. Um, Clearly, Hugh Jackman does too, which is my own personal sad. Um, But how does specifically our Walmart other groups that are in solidarity with them go about making it more toxic for politicians to be super pro Walmart for our favorite X-Men to be super pro Walmart for anybody to be super pro Walmart. So what I saw over the course of the time in Arkansas, as I wrote about it, the nation was a face of the kind of comprehensive campaign that we're seeing a lot in the labor movement. So there was this effort at, 
media pressure, discussion about consumer pressure. Workers were beginning to talk about various kinds of possibilities. About One worker suggested let's do a one-day consumer boycott at some point. Workers were talking about what it would look like to do a larger strike. One worker I talked to said, we really need to like bring the government in to regulate Walmart more, and that's what's going to scare the company. This was amid a series of actions I wrote about at The Nation, finding various and sometimes creative ways to try to change the color of the spotlight on Walmart. Pushing and challenging politicians hasn't been front and center for this campaign so far. There's an interesting historical counterpoint in that the campaigns of the 2000s, these union-backed groups, Walmart Watch and Wake Up Walmart, successfully got the whole Democratic presidential primary field to at least, the, or at least the leading contenders, to at least say somewhat to very negative things about Walmart. That hasn't been as much of a focus this time around. I've counted about half a dozen members of Congress who have either publicly criticized Walmart or demonstrated with the picketers, the most prominent of them being George Miller, who is the ranking member on what, when Democrats control it, is called the Labor Committee, but under Republicans is Education and Workforce. We saw Alan Grayson go into a store and escort a striking worker out. It's interestingly what the campaign has done so far, and I wrote about this in my longer piece on the Walmart board at The Nation, is target members of Walmart's board. Mm -hmm. Walmart's board actually just shrank from 17 members to 14 members, and the three departing members are among the CEOs on the board. Mm -hmm. So other companies that are represented, like Yahoo being the most prominent, since Marissa Meyer is at the center of many debates now about tech and feminism and the workforce... Marissa Meyer keeps being targeted by Walmart workers who, for good reason, are trying to use the attention to Marissa Meyer and Yahoo to draw negative attention to Walmart and right. make Yahoo's connection to Walmart unpleasant for Yahoo. Right. We haven't seen that in the same way with politicians yet. I reported at The Nation on a conversation I had with Terry O'Neill, the head of Now, who said, in her words, that the Obamas, Barack and Michelle, had screwed up by repeatedly praising and promoting Walmart and people from Walmart, like the head of Walmart's foundation, who now runs OMB for Obama. The campaign itself, the UFCW, our Walmart as an organization, have not leveled that kind of criticism at the Obama administration so far. And so, in some sense, it's to be expected that politicians have not made more effort to distance themselves because they have not had groups of workers going together and asking them to. They have not had leaders from labor or the campaign coming forward and asking them to. In fact, the most dramatic statement from organized labor criticizing President Obama for his praise for Walmart came from Richard Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO. Mm -hmm. The AFL-CIO is not the part of organized labor most associated with this campaign. The campaign is backed mostly by unions and change to win, but it it was an interestingly confrontational statement from Trumpka, and it will be interesting to see. I mean, around Black Friday, organizers told me that in 2013 there would be more of a 
political push this year in terms of engaging and making demands on politicians around Walmart. Certainly at the local level, politicians have been involved in the fights about citing additional Walmart stores. Mm -hmm. But it will be interesting to see, coming off of Arkansas, whether workers in the campaign more publicly make a higher expectation about what politicians should or shouldn't be doing around Walmart. And it's something that, if they do, could put some folks, like the Obamas, in a complicated position. I should say I've repeatedly, going back to last year, requested comment from the White House regarding the strikes in Walmart and have not received it so far. I'm thinking about another prominent Democratic politician who once upon a time was on Walmart's board who just joined Twitter to a lot of people's glee, not mine, and um, whether she might be running for president in 2016 and whether by 2016 Walmart might be a campaign issue for Hillary Clinton. More to come, I'm sure. That brings us towards the end of this week's episode of Descent's Belabored Podcast. Next week, we will have a very exciting interview with sociologist Penny Lewis about her new book about how we misremember and misunderstand the Vietnam War the opposition to the war, and class and labor. This is the point in the podcast every week where we say, Arg! I wish I had written that! Sarah, if you were trying to drill your way to the center of the earth, and instead of a drill, all that you had was your jealousy about a tremendous piece of journalism that you read over the past week, what would that piece be? So I am, it's, it's hard to say I wish I'd written this because the subject is so painful, um, but friend of ours and the podcast, um, Meredith Clark at MSNBC has been doing some amazing reporting on the um, ongoing problems of sexual assault in the military. And I had not really thought of this as a labor story up until this past weekend when um Yale labor historian Jennifer Klein on a panel that I hosted at the Left Forum mentioned that actually Linda Gordon had also brought this up at the Left Forum this weekend, that military sexual assault is a class issue. Jen was talking about the need for the labor movement to be a class movement. And she was, you know, mentioned that the the military is overwhelmingly made up of working class people, that the sexual assault within the military is something that they are facing on the job related to the work that they are doing. And if you look at Meredith's latest piece um, at msnbc.com, which is called Senate Set for Battle Over Military Sexual Assault, you can see a lot of these issues that we talk about on this podcast a lot of the time sort of writ large in this case. Um, so in this, in her latest piece, she discusses um, Senator Carl Levin's move to keep se- sexual assault prosecutions within the military chain of command. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand had made a, a proposal that they should be taken out of the chain of command, that essentially the people who are directly supervising mostly women who make reports of sexual assault should not be also in charge of bringing those charges to justice. Because one of the biggest problems, one of the reasons that many, many people in the military don't report sexual assault is that they face retaliation for bringing forth any questioning, any charges, any complaints about what happens between them and people who have some power over them, which is usually who is committing sexual assault within the military. 
So when you start to read this, you realize that these are workplace issues, right? The military is a specific kind of workplace that basically takes over your entire life, that your boss doesn't just have power over you on, you know, your eight hour shift or whatever it is, but that your boss really has sort of life and death power over you. When you add to that, that the overwhelming incentives to go into the military are, are it's a career track job for working class people who, as you know, we've talked about many times on this podcast, their, their job opportunities are shrinking fast. Um, so if it's work at Walmart or go into the military and actually have a chance to go to school and have that paid for and have a better life for yourself, for your kids, you know, it's a huge opportunity for a lot of people, whatever we may think about the military. And yeah, when you think about all of these issues and you think about what people are facing within the military, it is definitely a labor issue as well as a feminist issue, as well as a human rights issue. Um, if you are going to your job and fearing every day that you may be raped, and then if you report it, that you may be retaliated against in all sorts of frightening manners. It's really worth looking at all of Meredith's reporting on this. She's been doing a great job. Um, we will have links to several of her pieces up at the Descent Magazine website. Meredith is outstanding. This week, I read a Reuters piece by Danya Skariachin and Jessica Wohl. Jessica Wohl has been doing terrific reporting on Walmart for some time now at Reuters. This piece is called Exclusive Walmart's Everyday Hiring Strategy, Add More Temps. This confirms something that I heard from several workers when I was in Arkansas, which is that when new workers are getting hired in their stores, it's not as regular employees, it's as temps. And so Reuters actually did a study, looked at 52 stores run by Walmart, including one in every state, and found that in 27 of the 52, only temps were being hired. And the rest, either it was a combination or there was no hiring. And so this suggests that Walmart may have found a clever way of evading Obamacare requirements, a clever way of evading labor costs, but also, more acutely, a new way of pushing back, potentially within the limits of the law, a new way of pushing back on efforts to build a mass labor movement within its workforce. And so it could be a additional and really crucial front in terms of the struggle between labor and the dominant economic player in our economy, the largest employer in our country and in the world. So it's one that we will be watching. In the meantime, we hope that you will tweet ideas for explainer segments like the discussion we had last week about wage theft. We hope you will tweet story ideas about the podcast, hashtag belabored at us, or you can just tweet your appreciation for Natasha Lewis, our wonderful, wonderful producer. Or Sarah Leonard, our wonderful executive producer. On that happy note, we leave you to go out and belabor outdoors. Cause some trouble. We will see you next week. One thing we did right was the day we decided to strike. Keeping our eyes on the prize and holding on, holding on. I'll be buried in my grave for I'll be a Walmart slave. Keeping our eyes on the prize and holding on, holding on.